Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verses 1 through 8. We're going to spend our time there this morning. Psalm 119, 1 through 8, these are the words of God. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. In the first eight verses of this great psalm, uh, David highlights a, a common biblical concept, and that concept is this, the blessedness of walking in God's ways. In the opening verse, he states that those who walk blamelessly are themselves blessed. Those who walk blamelessly are themselves blessed. And then the following two verses assert the exact same idea. Uh, It says that blessed are those who, quote, observe God's testimonies and blessed are those who seek him with all their heart. David then develops this idea a bit further by saying that God's people do no unrighteousness. Simply put, this just means that God's people walk after his ways and not their own, but we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go through today. Verse 4 then serves as a kind of pivot point for the text here. Uh, He says, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Now, although the verse serves as a purpose statement for God's word, that is, that God made his precepts that we should keep them, that is the objective of the word of God, notice that David inserts himself into the text for the very first time in this verse, right? Verses 1 through 3 show this, that those who walk blamelessly are blessed, That's the they of those passages. So they walk blamelessly or they are blessed. While in verse 4, Paul or David communicates that God's word is the blueprint upon which now he hopes to build. Okay, This This is his blueprint. This is the way he wants to live his life. Then in verses 5 through 8, David changes course focusing inwardly. Uh, This is a really impressive piece. He petitions God. He says, oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Of course, he's not asking a literal question here, uh, but he is expressing a personal longing. I want to do this. Verses 6 through 8 continue. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Now, I hope you notice that this is one of those instances where I and me language is a beautiful thing. Because I and me here is a a person that wants to dive into God's word. I want to follow you. These eight verses are, are truly powerful, and they can be summed up this way. That the truly blessed walk in God's way. That God's way is found inside of his words, and that we should want to walk after them. We should desire to do what God uh, has commanded. We should want to be established. That's what David expressly says. David, uh, David humbly looks to God for knowledge and for ability to walk in God's word all the days of his life. All of this is what we will discover today in a greater detail, hopefully. And uh, along with that, I, I pray that it will become your desire as well to do exactly as David does. But first, I want to share with you an important understanding with regard to righteousness. And this is going to be something that for some is a little bit off balance for you. You've, you've probably not uh, seen righteousness talked about or heard righteousness talked about in this way. 
The concept that God has called uh, his people to righteousness and that King David and every other biblical writer, for that matter, uh, connects that with God's law is an easy truth to prove, okay? So walking in righteousness, connecting that with God's law, that's, that's completely an easy idea to prove. But fully understanding righteousness... Uh, in the context that we're looking at today, is going to require connecting some additional dots. Most of us see righteousness one way. We see it as good behavior. And in a sense, this is absolutely true. Proverbs 21.3 tells us to do righteousness. So does Isaiah 56.1, for that matter. In the verses that we discussed today, we're actually seeing the same idea. David just says it in reverse. He says that God's people do no unrighteousness. Right? But behavioral righteousness is clearly present. Can I get an amen on that? Behavioral righteousness is clearly present. Uh, but the foundational concept that David is getting at in this section is that men and women must be established as righteous in order to do righteousness. Men and women must be established as righteous in order to do righteousness, at least in order to do it in a way that is pleasing to the Father. Let me give you an example of this. In Psalm chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, but in Psalm chapter 24, verse 4, uh, David's wording here is absolutely uh, important for our understanding of this. He says this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing. Listen to the language here. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation? Does that sound strange to you? It's very interesting because uh, we're often, again, talking about behavioral righteousness. Isn't righteousness simply us doing good deeds? The answer is not exactly or not fully. Just because we do a good deed doesn't make the deed, or us for that matter, righteous. How many of you know that? This is why the Bible tells us that our good deeds can be filthy rags to God, Isaiah 64, 6. This is also why when people ask God, didn't we do this or that in your name? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. There is a declaration of their position that is not present in their life, and that's tragic. It's also important to see that the first half of Psalm 24, verse 4, all of these issues are issues of faith. Walk it through with me. This is really important. Psalm 24, 4 and 5. Uh, All of these with clean hands and a pure heart. You know what the Bible wraps all that up into? It wraps that up into what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and that is accessible to us not by works, but by faith. Amen? So we see that, again, if you want to study this on your own, you'll find it in Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. And those who have not lifted up their soul to falsehood or sworn deceitfully, this isn't work again. This is not bowing the knee to Baal in an old covenant context. This is an act of remaining in faith, remaining in trust before God, instead of the idols and the false gods that are presented in our world. These are the ones who walk by faith in every situation. So faith begets a declaration of righteousness. And the declaration of righteousness begets righteous behavior. That is the order according to Scripture. Righteousness fully understood is, again, a declaration of position before God, by God. We arrive at that by faith, which establishes us then in that position in a state to do righteousness. We are authorized at this point to be pleasing to God. How many of you know that the Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God? This is why. Without faith, you are not righteous. Without righteousness, all of your good deeds are still filthy rags to God. See, we get caught up in a lot of these discussions as the church. We say, well, can't atheists, can't the world do good things? The answer is they absolutely can do good things. Those good things are still filthy rags to God. Why? Because they haven't put their trust in the one who made the good things before the foundation of the world to walk in. Amen? So this is all really important. Now, all of this brings up a really important note about the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. 
many, uh, uh, many want to promote a kind of works contract distinction of the old covenant to the new covenant. But this is not accurate according to what the scripture says. Uh, the idea is this, that you work in the old covenant, they worked in order to earn God's favor. How many of you know that's not what the Bible says? They did not work in order to gain God's favor. Abraham had nothing to work for. He didn't even have a law to aim for. Instead, God said, come, walk by faith, leave the land of your father and mother, come after me. And Abraham had to go, okay, that's faith right there. <laughs> that, that's faith. Taking God at his word, that is a pretty impressive thing, right? So many will construe this idea as a works contract, but again, it's not accurate. In both covenants, the contract on offer is a contract of grace and faith. At all times, real faith will have feet, so don't forget that. At all times, real faith will exhibit works. It's just a truth of the Scripture. In the Old Covenant, those who walked by faith were walking with God, and they were consequently saved. Now, this creates a problem for many people because they say they were saved. What about Jesus? Didn't they still need Jesus? They absolutely still needed Jesus. But God's story is one of the most unique stories ever created. Why do I say that? Because only in God's story does Christ die at just the right time for humanity, past, present, and future. How does that work? <laughs> well, we'll ask him when we get there, right? So Romans 5, 6 tells us at just the right time Christ died. The people of the Old Covenant were looking forward to a coming Messiah who would redeem them and save them and, and bring them life. And we look back on one who came and one who will return. This is, this is important distinction in the covenant. Thus, the Old Covenant and the New Covenants are both covenants of grace through faith. In the former, God's promise was that his people Israel, they would bring forth the Messiah, the seed what were all the commands about? To keep a pure people so that the line is traceable from Adam to Christ. This is true. It has happened. It's unshakable. It's amazing how God works. The latter covenant, the new covenant, is a promise that his people, that is all who believe in King Jesus, the church, will bring forth the blessing that that seed came to give, which is that all nations Everywhere will be blessed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the difference between the covenants has to be understood rightly. Otherwise, the conclusion that we're going to come to, or that many assert, many uh, skeptics claim is the case, is that God made one plan in the Old Testament. He failed miserably. He didn't have really good foresight. Right? He didn't see that man was going to screw this whole thing up. And so after he learned all of that... <laughs> You should be laughing because he doesn't learn anything, right? He knows. And after he learned what he made, uh, the mistake he made, he came up with a new and a better plan, a more loving plan, a happy plan. No, 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 no. This is, this is absurd on every level possible, okay? This is unbelievable. Yet, this is what's taught by many churches. This is what's taught even in many seminaries. We're dealing right here with a declaration of righteousness, this grace is, is to be responded to by faith, okay? And so every covenant, old and new, is a covenant of grace and faith. God asking Israel to believe and trust him, and now asking the church to, to whom the seed came, right, to be a blessing to everyone. He's asking us that by faith we would carry that message to the world. So we need to walk in that, okay? So there are echoes of this declaration of righteousness. We're going to get back to that and then move into these verses piece by piece. But there are echoes of this established position of righteousness all throughout the New Testament. So if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. How many of you know that that's a declaration? He's declared that you're free. Uh, John 8.36 is where that's found. No longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends. It's declaration language, John 15.15. 15. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, but new things have come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. These are declarations. God has declared that we're new, that we're his friends, that, that we have a new thing inside of us. Last thing here. This offer to receive this declaration of righteousness is an offer extended to all, according to Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God wants that none should perish, but that all come to the knowledge of 
saving faith, that all come to know him, right? Not only that, but this understanding, this declaration of righteousness, it actually comes the same way as it does in the Old Testament. Again, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, you've been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness through what? Through the knowledge of him who saved you and gave to you the most precious promises. You are saved through an understanding, through a growing. So we're learning at all times. Uh, I will say this briefly before we work into each verse. There is this strange notion in the church today uh, uh, that what the scripture means by having childlike faith in the beginning of our journey, childlike faith, uh, is a noble characteristic that we should maintain all throughout our journey. And this is the notion, if it ever gets too complicated, the gospel gets too complicated, you're messing with the gospel. You're wrong. <laughs> the gospel is something that is, uh, the, uh, pastors say this all the time, it's like an ocean, it's like uh, an ocean where it's deep enough for you to drown in and it's shallow enough for a child to play in. Okay, the gospel, the truth of God's word is a profoundly deep truth and we are going to be growing and learning and understanding it all the days of our life. There are complexities of the gospel you can't get through to people by just saying, Jesus loves you, right? Why? Because this world doesn't even know what love means anymore. They don't know which Jesus you're talking about either. The Jesus made in your image or the Jesus made in God's image? Or the Jesus who is God's image? So it's really important that we are learning and we are growing and we are expanding our understanding. Childlike faith is to say, I trust you, Lord. What we need to do, though, after that, according to the Apostle Paul, is leave childhood behind and grow on to maturity. Wow, that's powerful. That's powerful, and we need to get it. Okay, Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2. Here we go again. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. We've seen similar blessed language to this. Matthew 5 records the Beatitudes, right? Everybody familiar with the Beatitudes? This is one of Jesus' most famous sermons. It's mostly misunderstood, mind you, uh, but it still gives us a list of blessed identifiers. Here's, here's what those uh, identifiers are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, most people see this as a list of behaviors that, if performed, receive a blessing. But that, as we just learned about righteousness, is also not how it works of blessedness. We don't pursue spiritual poverty to gain spiritual riches. How many of you know that? Because you're effectively pursuing spiritual riches. It's just a roundabout way of doing it, right? We also don't mourn so that we can be comforted. That's manipulation, not faith. <laughs> I'm just going to go over here and cry in my beer so God will pay attention to me. That's not how that works, okay, church? Some of you guys have got caught up on the beer analogy. Anyway, if we, if we do this, again, it's manipulation. It's not faith. Instead, what we read here is a description of who God came to rescue. These are descriptors of the people God came to rescue. Let's zoom into verse 10 so I can set this as an example. The blessed here in verse 10 are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. How many of you know we don't pursue persecution either? You'd have to be sadistic, okay, <laughs> right? So, so these are people who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, how many of you also know it doesn't mean that these people are righteous? God didn't come to save the righteous but sinners, but they are people who are pursuing. They are going after righteousness. They desire to do it God's way. They're not a people trying to claim uh, that they don't need Jesus, 
Okay? So they're, they're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The, the people in view here are New Testament uh, or Old Testament Jews. Why do I say that? Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, and he's still in Jerusalem. <laughs> this crowd is a bunch of Jewish people. They're listening to him at every word that he says, and they're just eating it up. This is powerful stuff. So as God, uh, it's possible that Jesus has the words of his servant David in mind when he is speaking these Beatitudes. But without question, he does have the crowd sitting before him in view. He is listening to them or seeing their situation. And that bit of context is vital. Matthew 5 and Psalm 119 both have the persecuted state of humanity and especially God's people in mind. Okay, So faithfulness amid persecution for David was the act of standing firm against rebellious Israel, among many other things. Faithfulness amid persecution for these crowds was that uh, soon, one day Jesus would redeem them, but right now they're being oppressed by the Jewish elite. And they're also understanding what the real cost of following Jesus looks like. It's a steep cost. Jesus has explained it already. All of which leaves them poor in spirit. All of which leads them mourning. They've been outed by the people who were supposed to care for them, the Jewish people. You notice in one instance when Jesus is healing somebody, he says, well, why is it that your leaders aren't doing this? He calls them out at one point and says, why haven't you done anything about this? Because he knows they're impotent. He knows they can't, okay? This is amazing. These people are longing for something. They're not claiming some awesome status and not needing Jesus again. But what they are is poor in spirit. What they are are mourning. What they are are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Each of these individuals, both Old Testament and New, embody one or more of these Beatitudes, So again, the Beatitudes identify a people that God came for. It is not a list uh, to be attained so that you can get blessed status. So the blessed represent a people, again, God came to rescue, to save. So what is the blessing of the Beatitudes? It's, It's more simple than maybe you think. If we're not doing X to gain Y, then what the heck is this whole thing about? Well, the blessing is both present and eternal. Notice what's repeated over and over in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. It shows us that the blessing is to inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's a blessing right there, church. That's a blessing. And who is that kingdom for? The poor in spirit. Those who have been persecuted. Those who are mourning. Those who are crying out. That's who God has come to give his kingdom to. Do you want a blessed life? Show your hands. Do you want a blessed life? Good. God says that the tangible thing that you're going to inherit is the kingdom of God. It's not a new car. It's not a bigger house. It's not a freer country. It's not what we're inheriting. What we're inheriting is God's kingdom. What a powerful truth. Maybe you're asking, how can the kingdom be tangible? Well, I'm going to explore that this week in the blog, so I encourage you to to log on there and check those things out because uh, what we need to remember is that God did tell us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, tangible, right here, right now, as it is in heaven. So we need to understand what that means and what that doesn't mean. Jesus said that the kingdom is like yeast that leavens flour. He said it's like a mustard seed that grows larger than other plants. Our inheritance is an ever-growing, ever-increasing blessing both here and now. Is that not encouraging? Our inheritance, again, is, is, is bigger than we can imagine. It's so much bigger than the trivial things that we keep begging God for. Not that he doesn't care about our life, but it's so much bigger. Is it any wonder why in Jesus' parables people will sell all that they have to inherit this kingdom? It's no wonder because it's a kingdom. It's, it's something that is priceless. One of the blessings is seen in the very next phrase in Psalm 119. It says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. I told you that the blessings are far more simple than we realize. It's not as complicated sometimes as we make it. The literal translation of blameless here uh, is complete or having integrity. Psalm 101 verse 2 says, I will give heed to the blameless way. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. How many of you have heard this old adage that says, integrity is what you do when 
No one else is looking. You've heard that, right? Within your home, if you will. Our king sums up walking blamelessly in Matthew 5, 48. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What is blameless? What is perfect? Mature and complete according to the Hebrew text. So to walk blamelessly is to walk maturely. To walk in a complete way. It's to humbly follow in the footsteps of King Jesus and to use his word as our guiding light. Amen? It's to do it his way. For the whole world to see, this is itself a blessing. You know what the blessing of being blameless is? Being blameless. (laughs) That's a blessing right there. How many of you know that when you're blameless, there's no guilt? There's no shame. You can walk tall. You can, be, uh, you can be proud, not arrogant, not boastful, but you know that there's nothing there. And there's a confidence inside of that. That's the blessing that we're seeing in view in the Beatitudes. The path to this is faith. It's seeking Him with our whole heart. Why does this result in blessing? Because those who seek God with all their heart find Him. Again, it's that simple, church. Jeremiah 29, 13 is where we find that. This idea that the blessing coincides with the act is all throughout the scripture. You find it in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. You find it in Psalm 119, Jeremiah 29, 13, and all the way through the Beatitudes. It's absolutely uh, beautiful. Many are tempted today uh, with a half-hearted approach to the kingdom of God, right? Often justifying their behavior by saying, well, I'm saved by grace and not by works, so I don't have to pursue anything. This is missing the point entirely. I've shared this before. Dallas Willard has famously remarked that the gospel is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. The idea that we can't earn our place before God is an established fact. How many of you know you can't make it right? You can't dig yourself out of a hole. Did you know that? Most of us are like, just throw me an extra shovel. Maybe I can figure it out. It doesn't work, okay? So you you aren't going to, to make yourself righteous. This is just simply not the case. But, but, the fact that God, the righteous king, the one who established you, the one who showed you mercy, the fact that he has called you to walk after him should motivate you to do whatever he says all the days of your life, amen? You should be like, I'll do it, Lord. You tell me to go, I'll go. That should be our life. The I've saved by grace uh, as an excuse crowd has missed another thing that's very vital. And that is that we are not saved independent from God. We are saved to him. It was Leonard Ravenhill who once said that uh, many people want to go to heaven. They just don't want to meet God when they get there, right? Uh, They want to go to heaven. They don't want to meet God when they get there. That was never on offer. (laughs) You don't get to spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth, in a new Jerusalem without God. The whole purpose is that he gives this new Jerusalem so that he can walk with us. This is what this is all about. So how blessed are we? If we are a people who, who God came to save, a people declared to be righteous. Proverbs 11.20 tells us that we are God's delight. We are God's delight. I can't think of a better blessing than that. How about, about a month ago I, I said that uh, I want to be a good and faithful servant. How many of you would agree with this? You want to be a good and faithful servant? I don't know about you, but I also want to be known as God's friend. I want to be known as his delight. And I want to hear him say, well done. I I want all of that. But this is the promise of those who walk by faith. He's declared you righteous. You don't have to worry. You don't have to stress. He's got you firmly in his hand. So let's move on to verse 3. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Now, does this verse mean that God's people never do anything wrong or sinful? Come on, respond with me. Does it mean we never do anything wrong or sinful? No, it doesn't. The answer is absolutely, emphatically no. And we can prove it in many ways. The first way to prove it is that the guy writing the text here is not sinless himself. But he is declared as God's righteous servant, right? He's an adulterer and a murderer, and yet he's God's favored king. That's a pretty amazing thing. Second, the New Testament, John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, 
I thought we were set free from the law of sin and death. Nathan, you are set free from the law of sin and death. Nobody said you're set free from willing to do sinful stupidity. Nobody said you're set free from that. You're set free from the consequence, the law of sin and death. We absolutely are. We're declared to be free, but we're also being made perfect. How many of you know that? We're being made perfect. This is called progressive sanctification. Right now, we are not yet what we will fully be, but we are quickly getting there. And one day, we will see God face to face because we will be as we should be. I'm reminded of a saying that I've heard so many times, I can't figure out who to give it credit to, but the saying goes this way, sanctification is the process of becoming what God has already declared you to be. Wrap your mind around that one for a little while, right? Sanctification is the process of becoming what God already declared you to be. You're free, you're a saint, you are his, and every day of your life you're walking that out, and you're learning and you're growing and you're pursuing those things. Though do no unrighteousness does not necessarily equate to a sinless life, we are diligent, or when we are diligent, to walk in God's ways, embracing that process of sanctification. We firmly plant our feet on God's path and safeguard our heart from turning toward unrighteousness. David is going to touch on these uh, few verses later in uh, verse 11 of Psalm 119 when he says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. To treasure God's word in your heart is a safeguard against sin. To treasure it. Is it any wonder that we should meditate on it day and night? Is it any wonder that we should study it more than we do? It's a safeguard against sin. Now, before we turn to verse 4 in that pivot point that I mentioned at the outset, I want to stress that David has said up to this point that uh, his, use of, his use of they language is describing that the truly blessed are those who walk in God's ways. They are blessed. He is not saying that if you walk this way, you will be blessed. Instead, he's saying the blessed walk this way. Get that order right, or it's going to be all kinds of weird for you. This is the same concept conveyed in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, the reward of being blameless is blamelessness. You are blameless. There's no fear in any of that. So, you can see that the whole of God's word is telling the same narrative. The Beatitudes, the Epistles, the Psalms, the rewards, all are consistent with the doing. The gentle inherit the earth, the merciful receive mercy, the peacemakers are the sons of God. So, they are blessed who follow after your word. The scripture has been established so that we would follow after it, and David, just like us, wants to be counted among the they. How many of you want to be a they? in all of this. I want to do God's word. I want to follow him all the days of my life. You should want to be that person. Okay, verse four. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Okay, there's the reason. The word ordained here means command. God commanded his precepts. Listen to me very clearly. God did not suggest his precepts. He commanded his precepts. He commanded you that you should keep them diligently. This is a creation order idea as well. Ephesians chapter 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But here's where interpreters go off the rails. Look at what it says next. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What is the antecedent of them? The good works God prepared beforehand. Not the you he prepared beforehand. It's the works. God has always planned that you would walk in his ways. Since the beginning, what did Adam and Eve do wrong? <laughs> they didn't walk in his ways. All of this is painting this new picture of Eden. It's drawing us back to a new place, right? We're supposed to be what Adam and Eve weren't, and we can do that through the power of Jesus Christ. So, this is all good. We should, we should definitely keep, uh, keep uh, compassion for our neighbors and all of those things as important things. But we have to move beyond the elementary to this Edenic restoration that God is calling us to. As we keep God's precepts, as we perform the good deeds that he planned for us, we will be ruling and reigning. 
That's what it means to rule and reign. We are subduing the world through God's works that he planned beforehand. We're expanding God's Edenic temple throughout the rest of the planet. This is the bigger picture, which is why the verse serves as a pivot point. David has said that the truly blessed walk in God's ways. Now he declares that the precepts are that order. That's the way that we should walk. And for the first time, David says, sign me up. That's the blueprint I wanted to be a part of. That's the blueprint upon which I build my life. This is David's call. So verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. A couple of weeks ago, I shared that during David's oppression and his affliction, he had been prevented from keeping specific key statutes. And I'm going to wrap this up here in just a little bit. We're not going to get through everything today, but I want you to hear this last piece. He, he had been prevented from keeping specific key statutes like sacrificial observations. There were people who didn't like David. David, His own son ousts him from the throne. This is one of many opinions that I'm about to share, but I want you to bear with me for just a second. If it is true that what is preventing David from obeying fully is that he isn't uh, on the throne, it's still an issue of being established. It's still an issue of having a right footing. Uh, David is effectively saying, God, I want to do everything you've called me to do. I want to keep all of your statutes. But David is not able to. He's been declared righteous, but many of his oppressors don't agree with that declaration. And so he's been ousted in some capacity. David may very well have been just calling out to God for justice once again. Now, though David's circumstances may differ from that of yours or present-day life, we can all identify with obstacles that have conspired to keep us from walking in God's truth. Amen? There are many things that try to prevent us from doing things, be they cultural prohibitions, personal sinfulness, poor teaching, a half-hearted approach to faith, which we talked about before. We each face unique challenges to keeping God's statutes, and subsequently, uh, we need His help in overcoming them, don't we? We need God's help. We don't only need to be established, we need to be empowered to move forward. In other words, no matter what David was facing, the point is still the same. Blessed people walk in God's way. God declared his ways that we should walk in them, but now we need God to help us. I think so many of us come to church and we learn some cool things and then we go out and we just try to do them in our own power. We're just trying to be a good Christian. We're just trying to do good works. The problem is we're not resting in God. We're not trusting Him with our actions and our behavior. We're not saying, actually, God, I need help. I know you you gave me your spirit. I don't even know how to use it. I don't know how to access things. I know you gave me your word. I don't understand it. But instead, we just go on and we play Christian. But that's not helpful. That's not getting us anywhere. So consequently, because of all these things, we know deep down in our heart we're not doing what God said, and therefore we live with shame, and we live with guilt. But here's the, here's the sad part. We come to church, and we've done it for many years, and we put on a mask. It has nothing to do with COVID. It has everything to do with pretending we're actually following Jesus. When we know we're walking in sin, we're walking in unrighteousness, We haven't done what God has asked us to do. What's the problem? The problem is we're being hypocrites. The problem is your heart's messed up. The problem is you're not listening. The problem is you're not walking by faith. The problem is we aren't doing any of these things. So God has said that the blessed walk after him, right? He then gives us an entire established set of commands and calls to walk after Because that's what the blessed do. They walk after God. And then David says, sign me up. I want to be that guy. We say the same thing, but we miss one really important thing. David said, you must establish me to do it. You must teach me. You must empower me to do these things. And this is what we need help with. We need to come back to this. I had a really great conversation this week with Stephanie Gammon and we were talking about these issues that cause shame in our life, cause us to be hindered from walking after God. And, and I want to sh- share this before I share some of Steph's words, but I want to share this. If I asked you all this same question, 
you would be able to give me a wealth of information that would be applicable to this greater body. There are things that each of you struggle with, each of you deal with in your life, that you would say, this is what brings me shame in my life. This is what hinders me from doing these certain things. So take, take these words just as an example, a, a cross-section of the things that might prevent us from walking after God. And then listen, uh, as I close, listen to how we negotiate past this, how we get beyond this kind of shame. So again, earlier I mentioned that we might feel different types of shame depending on what obstacles conspire to keep us from walking out God's commandments. Instead of playing the hypocrite, let's change the system. Let's, let's go back to King Jesus. Let's ask him for help, right? So Steph had shared with me this. She said, you know, one of the things that, that people might struggle with is what Proverbs calls being a fool, Let me quote her for just a second. Being firmly rooted in the word of God brings wisdom. When we lack wisdom, we act like fools. Can you give Steph an amen on that one? (laughs) Okay, well, you can give... She's not saying she's a fool in this. Okay, but anyway, this brings shame upon all of us because we don't want to be a fool, do we? None of us want to be that. Proverbs 3.35 says, The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. So guess how we remedy this, God, guys? We go back to God. We go back to his word. We stop operating in me, in us, in foolishness, and we go back to God's word. Again, maybe, your obstacle, maybe our obstacle, Steph's words, maybe our obstacle is that we are entertaining the passing pleasures of sin rather than hiding God's word in our heart. How many of you have done that? I've done it. When we forsake the light of God's word, we will walk in the dark of sin, foolishness, and unrighteousness. This heaps shame and chaos into our lives, and it brings grief, embarrassment, and bitterness to those we love. It also reflects poorly on the king that we say we represent, bringing shame on his holy name, Malachi 1. And its end result will be our shameful disconnect from both God and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Shame separates us, doesn't it? What's the solution again? God's word is clear. His word. Him. Run back to him. Last piece. Maybe the obstacle we face is not knowing that we have a personal responsibility to study God's word. This this can shame us when we share our faith or don't share our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we must always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. How many of you know that to be true? Now let me ask you another question. How many of you don't feel equipped enough to share your faith? Please be honest with me. Raise your hand if you feel, I I don't know. I don't even want to open my mouth. I'm going to be taken to task. We struggle with this. Guess what that produces in you? Shame. Guess what the solution is? Go back to his word and learn how to give the defense of the hope that you have. It's really that simple, right? We're exhorted to always be ready to give that defense of our faith. But how can we accomplish this if we haven't cared enough to study the Scripture? This is the foundation upon which we live and we make our case. This ability often leads to mockery from the world. But if we've studied, if we have readied ourselves, then the shame will be on the one who mocks us, not on the message we declare. Isn't that a great, great word? So here's how we wrap this up. I loved those words and and my response to this is regardless of the shame we presently wrestle with, if we will look on God's word and do it, can you say that with me? And do it. It's not enough to just be a hearer of the word, right? My dad reminds me of this all the time. You have to be a doer. So we, we have to look on God's word and do it. That shame, that shame that we deal with, it will vanish from our minds. David has a humility and an earnestness to never give the devil a foothold. He knows that those who walk in God's ways are blessed. He knows that God's ways are established in his word. And now, in humility, David cries out to God that he never wants to look on any of God's commands with shame. He wants to be able to do them. So he asks God to teach him, to establish him, to empower him so that he can personally do what he's called to do, so that he can be the they of verses 1 through 3. So here's where I find us as a church today. I think we know that the blessed do it God's way, right? 
I think we know that. I think somewhere deep inside, even if we want to be rebellious at times, I think we know that the blessed do it God's way. I think we also know instinctively that God's word gives us the instruction manual for how to walk. Don't you think? I think we do that. Where I think we don't understand properly is in the I need to be established in righteousness to do righteousness. I need to be empowered to do righteousness. And I need to be instructed to do righteousness. Let me just be candid with you. I, I do this a lot. This is, this is genuine Nathan from my heart, what I deal with, what I see, and what I hope will change in the church. The church today doesn't want to listen to anyone else. They don't want to listen to a pastor. They don't want to listen to a teacher. They don't want to listen to anyone I have a relationship with God. His spirit is in me. I don't need anything else. Let me be just very blunt with you. You are dead wrong. The same spirit that you have inside of you is the same spirit that inspired the word of God. And it's the same spirit that said, God has given people to shape you and mold you and teach you. To think otherwise means you are arrogant. You need to repent and you are the cause of your limited growth. Did that sting a bit? I can go harder. This is the same heart, and this is definitely going to get me shot. So anyway, deal with it. Suck it up. I'll pray for my wife and my kids after I'm gone. Anyway, I love the country I live in deeply love the country I live in. It is a messed up place right now, is it not? A messed up place. But the spirit of our country that says, don't you tell me what to do, don't you tread on me, that spirit has taken over the church and not the other way around, the church's spirit taken over the world. It is. It is the devil, but listen to me. We can't be modern day Christian I'm going to use another word that's going to irritate somebody. Modern day Christian snowflake. We can't go pointing the finger. It's always the devil's fault. You know who has to listen to the devil? You do. <laughs> that's the problem. That's the problem, church. Guys, it's really easy to understand the concept that the they of Psalm 119 verses 1 through 3 are those who walk after God's word. It's easy to understand verse 4 that tells us that God's word was established so that we would walk in it. But it's a challenging thing for us to realize we have to surrender, we have to be established, we have to be taught, we have to humble ourselves in order to walk in it ourselves. Church, we've got to change. You know what the answer to the chaos of our world is? The gospel not you weighing in on politics or me weighing in on politics, point blank, like just, just blanket statements. You must infuse the gospel into what you're saying. You know what's going to solve race relations inside of our country? Jesus, the gospel, is going is to save us. It's not going to be our wars of opinions. You know what's going to change the, the status of the American culture? People surrendering to Jesus. You know what's going to solve the issues that we face when, when people want to uh, drag up sins of the past and blame everybody for it? The gospel, which forgives. The problem is the church is not preaching the gospel. I know, I'm on a, I'm on a tear here. <laughs> Come on, I like Tim. Tim's okay because he'll get shot with me. Anyway, so, but the, po the point that I'm getting at is that we've got to be a people preaching the gospel. We got to be sharing, we have to be sharing the truth of God's word. But guys, more than anything else, we have to be established in his truth. We have to be established. We have to be taught. We have to be empowered. Last thing, last thing. Right. Dave, you can leave now.
It, I know. I, Dave is saying what everybody's thinking, but that's okay. You can leave, Dave. <laughs> Everybody else has the courtesy to not say it. Anyway. <laughs> um, there's this idea that, that silence in today's world is complicity, complicity, whatever word I'm looking for. I, my, my brain is not working today. But silence is being complicit in the problems. Um, I don't always agree with that. I want you to hear this from me. I don't think that every Christian has to weigh in on every issue. I don't think every pastor has to weigh in on every issue, right? I think you should weigh in where you have influence. I think you should speak to the people that you care for and the people that are listening to you. I don't think you have to weigh in on everything. But I will agree with that statement if we're talking about the gospel. Your silence is a problem. Your silence is a problem. Please don't mishear me. You don't have to tell me what your opinion is of Democrat, Republican. You don't have to give everybody your opinion of what's going on with Black Lives Matter. You don't have to give your opinion on everything. And I'm fine. I won't blame you for that. I won't tell you that you're a coward or any such thing. I will say, go with your convictions. But if you're going to keep silent when it comes to the gospel, you're part of the reason why we're here. We can't do it anymore, church. What are you saying, Nathan? You're saying that, that I have to learn how to speak the gospel, I have to learn how to share it with other people? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying stop shutting up. I'm saying open your mouth, open your keyboard, your Facebook account, your Instagram, whatever it is. Promote Jesus and the peace that he brings. Promote Jesus and the life that he offers. If you do not do it, don't think, well, I just wasn't called to be a preacher. The scripture does not say that he commissioned some. We are sent out. We are proclaiming it. It might be to our children. It might be to our family members. Don't let that be an excuse that makes you shut up all the time and you just claim that you tell your kids that. Tell everybody you know about Jesus. The world is never going to change unless Jesus is on the throne in their lives as he is in ours. It's a fact, church. It's a fact. So we've got to get better at this. So here's the summation again. The they of God's word, verses 1 through 3, are the blessed in, God, in the kingdom life. Verse 4 says they obey his statutes which were created for this purpose. And in order to be the they, we need to be established, empowered, and taught. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.